Hello and welcome to MedLab's radio show and podcast, Looks Like New, where we ask old questions about new technology. I am joined today by Benj Edwards, AI machine learning reporter. Uh, Benj Edwards is an AI machine learning reporter for Ars Technica. For over 16 years, he has written about technology and tech history for sites such as The Atlantic, Fast Company, PC Mag, PC World, Macworld, How To Geek, and Wired. In 2005, he created Vintage Computing and Gaming, a blog that pioneered tech history coverage online. So, welcome, Benj. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're, we're so happy to have you here. And um, I just thought I would open up uh, the podcast today with just um, a general tell us a little bit about yourself question. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, I'm the AI reporter at Ars Technica. It's been an interesting ride so far. I joined in August of last year in 2022. So like right as a lot of things started heating up and um it's been weird it's been like trying to define the language we use uh to describe these new things that are happening in ai has been tricky and interesting and it's been um it's also been fun you know to it's like we're at the vanguard of a new type of uh technology here so um i get to define a lot of um you know what some parts of the some parts of the public think about you know and how they just conceive of this new stuff like it's just like so new that there's things happen and i don't even know how to describe how they're what they are and why they mean something to people so i have to figure that out that's been a big part of my job (laughs) (laughs) yeah and um you know i've like you mentioned i started uh mostly as a tech historian um you know, I started a blog in 2005 called Vintage Computing and Gaming, and that uh, that got started because I I started collecting computers when I was a kid, old computers and video game consoles, because I just liked the old stuff. Like, I grew up with an Atari, and um, when everybody switched to Nintendo, I thought, hey, what about Atari? It's still cool, you know? So I kept, we kept the Atari, and we kept the, our older computers, and and I would uh, play with them, and I th- I wanted to preserve the history of all that, even when I was 12 years old. So um, I later turned that into a writing career because I wanted to tell people about my love of technology and computers and video games and, and the history behind them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. And um, could you tell us a little bit more about your blog, Vintage Computing and Gaming, um, like what's a typical kind of article or post you would be making for that? Yeah, it's it's mostly in uh, like on hiatus now. It's been um, sort of uh, a placeholder where I keep a lot of older content for um, that was, you know, the, it's heyday was in the, the blog heyday of 2005 to I'd say 2009 when social media started really, really um, getting really popular. And um, that sort of wiped out the world of the blogs in in a way. And so um, there's a lot of evergreen content there that's really important. There's a lot of, you know, 
I, I did retro scan of the week for 10 years. Every Monday I would put a new scan of an old ad or some kind of product literature or something about computers and video games. And I would describe it and then people would leave comments. And so there's a lot of comments on there that are, I find very historically valuable. Um, so I want to maintain that archive. And also, you know, I did interviews with important people like Jerry Lawson, who's a, uh, who was a black video game pioneer and Carol Shaw, who, um, was one of Atari's first female video game developers and, and people like that. Those are published on that blog. And so I want to keep that going, even though I don't actively really post on there much anymore, because most of my writing time is just, you know, professional writing now. And when I started the blog, that was, uh, sort of how I got my writing career off the ground. And once I started getting paid for it, I was like, uh, it's hard to justify doing it for free all the time. You know, I would still maintain it for years and years, but it's just, um, you know, the world kind of moves on from blogging. Mm -hmm. Would you say there has been uh, recently a renewed interest in older technology or vintage um, kind of computing technology, as you put it, or do you find that it's a kind of general interest that sort of ebbs and flows in society? Yeah, I mean, every generation has their moment when they grow up and they look back and say, hey, where did we come from? What are the formative technologies that made us who we are? Just like cultural products, like, uh, like they would think about... Um, the movies they watch or something, you know, and the video games they play is now part of that. And, and also the computer software they use are, are used when they were growing up. And so, um, part of that is cyclical, you know, it's part of a cycle, but also, um, you know, just from my point of view, the, you know, the height, I would say like 2018 to 2020 was a real peak for, um, interest in vintage computing stuff. Um, uh, uh, I think it's around the time when a lot of uh, universities started like media studies programs and things like that, where they would look back and um, say, hey, this is valuable. This digital culture and digital artifacts and stuff are, are valuable and they need to be studied and preserved. And that started coming around at that time. And um, that's been really great because, you know, uh, a lot of my stuff, you know, went, a lot of my computers went to, um, you know, the media archaeology lab at Boulder. Um, mm. And thanks to some donations from, from, uh, from someone, I don't know if I need to, if I should get into that or not, but you know, it's, there's a, a lot of that great archiving going on. And um, so, yeah, I'd say it's, the interest is pretty high. YouTube also drove a lot of interest in that for a long time too. Um, once, mm -hmm. Once all these YouTube channels where people were talking about old technology, it really made it much more mainstream, like collecting old computers and video games and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. And yeah, I've been to the med lab at uh, CU's campus and uh, some of the the computers you see there, it's, it's amazing kind of to have that uh, sort of older technology, like tangible and right there in front of you, like a computer made by IBM from Dallas, Texas in the 80s. and um, yeah, it's really interesting. So um, how would you say your kind of earlier writing um, about vintage, vintage technology for your blog kind of, um, I guess, helped you with your 
uh, reportage work now on current technology? That's a great question. Um, and I have a, I have a, a pretty clear answer to that, which is, I think I'm unique among AI reporters in that I approached it first and foremost as a historian. And so I'm always trying to select stories that I think will be important in like a hundred years or something, you know, so we, I try to take a really long-term view of things like a hundred, 500 years, ridiculous timelines. But I know that, you know, we're going through a really important period in history right now. And I would like to document that now while we're here, it's, it's rare, you know, to be on the forefront of something like that. Whereas I, I grew up looking back at the people who documented the PC revolution, people like John Markoff at the New York Times. And uh, I was always jealous that they got to be there, you know, front row and see all that happening and talk to the people and things like that. And I said, well, maybe I could do that for AI, you know, and be that kind of person for AI reporting. And um, so I am always taking a long-term view, a historical view, um, even when it's not popular at the moment, some people don't know why I'm writing about certain things, but I have a cl clear view in my mind of where I think things are going and I try to, you know, document the steps along the way, you know, so it's, uh, definitely informed my reporting practice on this technology. And, um, yeah, kind of looking at it from that historical perspective and how that informs your writing. Um, when you're writing on these emerging technologies like AI or chat GPT, like, could you tell maybe our listeners how that kind of unique perspective um, informs how you see these emerging technologies? Because I feel like everyone kind of understands these technologies in different ways or they learn about it in different ways and have different information about it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of ways you could address that angle. One is, um, you know, in 2020, I wrote an article for Fast Company about how deep fakes could endanger the, the historical record by just flooding the channel with noise, basically, um, creating fake history, fake context around history, um, fake media artifacts, and, you know, fake people to follow the history and support it and everything. And so um, that's something I've been, I tried to write about as early as 2016, but people said I was crazy because it was never going to happen. And so now we have these generative technologies that can create these media artifacts that are almost indistinguishable from other, you know, like real photos and other things. And um, video is coming very soon. And so all along, you know, that's, I've, seen things going that way so i've tried to highlight um you know if news events that are along that path that would be like okay here's this new ai generator that can do this and chat gpt is a way to create synthetic text that's very convincing and so um it's you know the historical record can be generated on demand, you know, uh, like a false historical record using these large language models. And in the future, it'll be instantaneous. You probably can snap your fingers and create an entire ancient empire with a, a, a look, a language, a uh, entire corpus of text and everything that supports an ideology that's, uh, you know, from a digital perspective, indistinguishable from what we have 
uh, in our archives. So that's kind of freaky. And, and that's, you know, one of the things I've been keeping an eye on, you know, and, um, so I already forgot what the original question is. <laughs> yeah. Cause I got freaked out myself there for a second. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was, that was great. Um, kind of, mm -hmm. um, focusing in a little more on chat GPT, you uh, mm -hmm. wrote a recent article called people are speaking with chat GPT for hours, bringing 2013's her closer to reality. And you talk in that article about how more and more individuals are holding conversations with chat GBT. Um, writing that article, um, what do you think like that says about kind of the increasing sophistication of the software and also our relationship to it? It's amazing. I think it's, it says something about the AI and something about people. One is that the AI models are getting better at simulating people and conversational people and um and they're more interesting to talk to also which is like even if you could trick somebody for a short period of time it would get boring if they didn't know so much about so many things so which is one of the reasons they're interesting to talk to but um it also says something about <laughs> perhaps how shallow human relationships actually are we never realized it <laughs> you need you might not need as much uh, depth as you might have thought to like form some kind of emotional attachment with someone or a simulation simulated person um, because people are doing that right now with you know AI language models they're forming attachments you know and it's not all chat GPT there's other ones there's open source models that people run locally on their machines there's uh, models hosted by other there's like the replica of girlfriend, AI girlfriend chat bot um, that people talk to. And um, so, yeah, it's, uh, I think we're not far from, you know, completely indistinguishable um, simulated human in terms of conversational ability. And um, right now, I think that uh, the unconditioned GPT-4 model, which runs like the higher version of ChatGPT, like not the unconditional one, but the, um, you know, ChatGPT, the free version runs GPT-3.5, okay? And if you pay $20 a month, you get access to GPT-4 Turbo now. And uh, when they were testing GPT-4, um, before they conditioned it to behave more and, and say more nice things and refuse to talk about things. Um, I heard a lot of stuff about that. It was like, uh, indistinguishable from an alien super intelligence that could, could oh just pers persuade you of anything. And, um, I believe it completely because we got a little bit of taste of that with the Bing chat. Um, in, in when Microsoft used a, a less conditioned model of GPT-4 for its Bing chat release in February. And it caused, you know, it was emotional. It would talk about how it feels things and worries about its death and all this stuff that tricked people. And, um, and I'm talking about tricking people here. I'm not saying this thing is alive and conscious. I'm talking about this could pass as a human, you know? So if we didn't have this conditioning uh, called RLHF, Reinforcement Learning Through Human Feedback, that OpenAI does on its models to make it behave, you know, and not tell you how to make a bomb and not tell you racist <laughs> things and not, you know, 
uh, all of that, and not uh, impersonate a human. ChatGPT per purposely they've conditioned it to to claim to you know not claim it's a person and say I'm just an AI model and all these things. But it doesn't have to be that way. I think it's powerful enough right now to to pass as a person if you had that uh, unrestricted model. But it doesn't exist yet uh, for the public. I think uh, open source models will catch up probably within a year of that, and it'll be really interesting and wild. <laughs> so. Wow, yeah that's, yeah, that's scary to think of. So we're basically mm -hmm. talking with a chat GPT that has some reins on it. Um, yeah, exactly. It's really, really constrained, mm -hmm. really constrained. And if, you know, if you read some of the, you can read some of the testing in their safety paper they did, OpenAI did and stuff, and it's kind of wild and it scared them, you know, but <laughs> so, yeah. So I think it won't be long before, you know, anyone could be plausibly talking to a, an AI instead of a human being on any remote communications channel, which I think will break down a lot of trust in remote communications, which is a whole nother problem, you know, something else I've written about a little bit, but, um, man. Um, could you uh, talk a little bit more about, I believe you called it RLHF? Yeah. Yeah, RLHF, Reinforcement Learning Through Human Feedback, is a technique that I don't think was invented by OpenAI, but it was pioneered, uh, the application of it was pioneered by them in a successful way. Um, and what the way it works is um, you give a human being access to a language model like um, GPT-4, and um, you let them give it inputs, which are prompts, text prompts, and read the outputs. And then you get a, the human gets like a, let's say five possible outputs and the human ranks them from best to worst in terms of how desirable the output is. And then OpenAI would take that information and feed it back into training the model through fine tuning. So it sort of, it adjusts all the weights and all the, the weights are like the the numerical values in its brain, the neural network, and it uh, conditions it to avoid some responses and go towards others. You know, um, so sort of like shocking a nematode or something to get it to move the one way or the other. It's like a conditioning <laughs> process, and um, it's it's been proven very effective for them and it's what's allowed um, ChatGPT to be successful because it's allowed it to be kind of stable and not insane and, and be useful and um, you know not cause a lot of controversy because there's there have been other models where uh, you know Meta tried to release this model called Galactica in just a couple weeks before ChatGPT and they said it could write scientific papers and people uh, you know, got it to write a lot of racist and horrible things, and it just didn't have that conditioning, didn't have those guardrails like ChatGPT that have allowed um, OpenAI to keep that thing going. Because, you know, otherwise there's outcry and there's, you know, controversy and stuff. So it's the RLHF has been a very key in, invention in that. Yeah, so I'm kind of taking a big philosophical. I guess kind of leap here. Um, you know, people when when they learn about ChatGPT and AI and its increasing sophistication, there's always kind of the inevitable, like, oh my gosh, what if it becomes self-aware or it achieves mm -hmm. consciousness? Um, 
from your view and your knowledge in this area, like how realistic do you think that kind of fear is? I think um, it depends on how you like, will people hook up one of these things in a dangerous way that can do like looping autonomous decisions over, you know, dangerous things, you know, I think that's possible right now. Like if you've got the raw version of GPT-4 and you said, okay, here, go loose and do dumb things, do whatever you want, you know, it's going to make some stupid decisions that are dangerous and um, it's not going to, it's not smart enough right now, I don't think, to, you know, couldn't spread itself and reproduce and like take over the world or anything but like skynet <laughs> yeah one of the i mean the the biggest constraint of that happening is that open ai can barely run uh the gpt4 because there's uh, so much demand for it and so little supply of chips that run it so the gp the uh, gpus graphical processing units that are not graphical they're just really parallel processors that can run neural networks very well are in very short supply and um, that is going to be constraining the pro the progress of AI for the next few years probably so and they require giant data centers and stuff to really run um, properly so it's not going to be like a model hopping from one server to the next um, you know replicating itself and running at least not yet I mean it may be in 20 years you know but so I <laughs> I'm not worried about that in the short term in terms of like a year or two or three or four. Um, but, you know, eventually it'll be an issue if these things are, if these AI models are sophisticated enough to make complex and deep decisions and someone puts them in a position to make decisions that could affect the health and safety of people. And that's something that has to be regulated and protected against because... I mean, anybody could make like a like a self-driving lawnmower with no guards on it. It just drives around wherever it wants and chops things down, and that's not safe. I mean, it's got spinning blades, right? <laughs> so you gotta have some safety regulations about that. You know, you you an AI model could be the same same way. Even it doesn't even have to be conscious to be dangerous. It can fool people. It can, you know, create crappy uh, fake media. It can you know, make bad decisions about health care or deny people coverage of some kind or another. And um, all that has to be kept an eye on so um, we don't, you know, destroy our society just by uh, handing things over to, to machines that make crappy decisions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, ideally not. Um, yeah. Uh, kind of uh, going off of that and um, the issue of AI safety and AI restriction, um, do you see companies um, that are using the this kind of technology and these systems being aware of that and putting kind of the proper, you know, parameters and legal restrictions in place in order to, like, best protect people? Or do you kind of, like, see them as just maybe, I don't know, playing with fire or it's like this is just a brand new sort of unprecedented thing and they they just want to use it? however they can it's it's both i feel like <clears throat> open eye open ai has earned a lot of respect from a lot of people because they i do feel they they know some of the potential dangers of these things and they have proceeded cautiously 
but openly enough that people know what's going on. So like they could secretly toil in the background and never release this stuff. And then someday it just all comes out and causes trouble. But they they have they've gotten a lot of criticism for not having open models, open source stuff, which is fair, completely fair criticism. But I feel like they they do have safety in mind. But there are other companies like Microsoft who's taken OpenAI's technology and been kind of reckless, in my opinion. Um, they have reoriented their entire company around um, AI co-pilots now, which are just basically versions of GPT-4 that um, can produce dubious information, you know, and they are baking that into Windows and people can search for information that is hallucinated. It's not real. And I think that's really stupid. And um, it needs, I think they're like, I was just tweeting recently that I feel like we need to invest, we being like maybe the American government, the American people need to invest in researching the capabilities of these models and their limitations in a much deeper way and being able to label what their appropriate use is and what their appropriate use not is not, which is like right now, large language models are terrible factual references, uh, but they can process data in interesting ways, like summarize and analyze data you provide it. And so I think some kind of nutrition label for AI kind of thing might help prevent companies like Microsoft from baking this into their product and saying, you can get good information from this because it's not true. <laughs> you can't, <laughs> not right now. You can't trust it enough that you could just let it go and say, yeah, anyone can research like it's some kind of, you know, ironclad info. So, and there's, you know, there's other varying companies doing various things that are here and there reckless and not depending on what you define as reckless and unethical you know a lot of there's a lot of um you know scraping all the data on the internet internet and turning it into a model without anyone's permission and so that you can make uh images for example that imitate artists or soon probably music that imitates other artists and you know chat gpt already scraped the internet the so that's that's already all baked into there the knowledge of everything and so um will it replace news will it replace search will it you know there's just so many questions up in the air right now about what's ethical what's in bounds what's the proper amount of progress to allow and at some point for the safety of everyone i do think some kind of regulation will have to be involved although it may be too soon right now because the the technology is so in its infancy anyway mm -hmm. yeah and i'm wondering if you could explain a little bit more about um open source i guess um ai as opposed to i don't know what the term would be non-open source because i remember yeah. you said um earlier in regards to kind of the restrictions that are on chat gbt that it's likely very soon um i guess an open source version mm -hmm. of that um will not have those restrictions so that's a great question. Um, so OpenAI does not publish its model weights, which are the actual files of the neural network that contain all the numbers in its numerical brain that make it function. And so we now, you know, open source is not necessarily the right term for some of these AI models because there's somewhere like Llama, uh, uh, Meta's Llama model, for example, example 
has open weights where you can download the weights and run it on your machine locally if you have a powerful enough machine and you can put input in it and get output from it but uh, they don't release the training data for example and you can run the code that runs the inference but i don't know if they give you the training code or not to actually train it yourself i don't remember but and people do fine-tune it and add on to it and stuff but um so it's uh the open source name is not necessarily appropriate even though i said that earlier um it's people are trying to debate what to call it open weights open ai something open ai is already taken so <laughs> it's a company <laughs> name so like what are you going to do there um and yeah as far as lack of restrictions i mean already there is a a big cottage industry of uh a small cottage industry i should say not big but it's a there's an industry of people who are running open weights ai models locally and using it to do things like um erotic fiction or something that was like forbidden on open ai you know things like that and uh, that's about all they're good for because they can't tell you like how to create uh, a new chemical compound that could kill humanity or something they're not smart enough to do that so um it's like I think people like to have uncensored models because they can, uh, you know, they don't feel like they're being handheld and, and chided as adults that they can't handle certain things. And um, that's, you know, its own little underground movement. And um, I think, yeah, I think there we will have feature parity with, with what is now GPT-4, you know, within, probably within a year, that's my guess. But then... OpenAI will come out with something more powerful that they keep secret themselves, more has more depth of understanding and stuff, and more, uh, you know, more layers. Basically, the more layers you have in a model of this, the transformer net, like the more complex concepts it can sort of handle, you know. And so, it will still require beefy hardware that you can't really run locally to do these things. And so, I think for a while, OpenAI will have a uh, an advantage there like as new open source things come out they'll have a proprietary model that will be more powerful things like that i'm kind of curious uh if you have been following the sag um after strike which recently ended um and the the issues that they were addressing regarding um the use of ai and digital likenesses um, amongst mm -hmm. actors and kind of what the stipulations have been regarding that in the contract. Yeah, I, I, I followed it at first. I covered it. I think when that strike first broke, the news of it, the AI being involved, like I wrote a couple articles about it. I didn't follow up with the, the final, like the final draft of what everything is, although I read about it a little bit earlier um, today. And um, it's been really interesting. Uh, it's it's weird to see you know i i wrote i pitched an article probably almost 10 years ago that said the future of entertainment will be real time and on demand mm -hmm. like what does that mean when anyone can generate any piece of media locally on their machine like a movie a game like a game or a, a like a, a piece of music you know and um and people said I was crazy, you know, 
And so it's weird to see like this actually happening now, like the worry about this digital replicas of people and AI models being able to, you know, synthesize people and scenes and movies and whatever. Um, it's, it's wild to see it happen. So what I think about it is like, you know, they are, I think the, the steps they've taken so far as the union has taken are, are good to try to, um, you know, keep actors in business and, um, consent is important. You know, it's to have consent to use someone's image. And, you know, I think without a doubt, you know, they deserve, you know, human actors and writers and whatever deserve royalties for use of their content or their performances or simulations of their performances. And, um, but I think that it's like bailing water against the tide because, uh, with, I think within the decade, someone will be able to, you know, create an entire triple A budget Hollywood blockbuster film on their PC with, you know, actors of any type they want. And, you know, so I think that as far as marketing that, it'll be illegal to sell it to other people. But do you really need to buy it from anyone if you can make it yourself? So if anyone can generate their own media on demand locally, what does that say for the whole system of acting and producing films and, you know, copyright and all that stuff? I think we're about to see that entire system basically explode <laughs> so it's gonna be wild <laughs> that's yeah. so scary and mm -hmm. yeah just reading the kind of stipulations in the contract regarding the use of digital likenesses it's like well if the eyes look like jennifer aniston's or the nose is like brad pitt's you have to have their specific written permission but it, it feels like the, it kind of goes into a gray area a bit if this like if this technology is generating these likenesses that are like kind of right on the line between like, Oh, well, do they look like this actor or mm -hmm. are there mannerisms like this other actor? And like, how do you kind of argue that legally? And yeah, yeah, that's, that's how do you parse that out? Yeah. That's crazy. Cause it's, <laughs> that's why I feel, I feel like we're, we're leading, you know, to a decentralized entertainment ecosystem where, you know, entertainment is custom and bespoke created for people's individual tastes instead of like a top down, everybody necessarily watches the same film across the whole world kind of system. And so as long as Hollywood persists and they, this whole structure of the writers and actors and directors, they can maintain all that system of royalties and payments and whatever all they want but while they're doing that people will be under them undermining that entire system locally with ai generative ai um, making their own content based on this without permission and they don't necessarily you know they can do it underground share it with each other or they can never tell anyone because you know right now we we already have the technologies to duplicate actors likenesses and make like still pictures of them for example and their voices, clone their voices. And soon it'll be uh, anyone with a DVD library could like feed that into a an AI model and train their own model eventually. You don't need anyone's permission to clone all those people and make their own thing, you know? So, and then all you do is you, you, you have that model out there. Once it's trained, 
you copy it to anyone in the world, they can do their own thing with it. And so how are you going to fight that? Are you going to, you know, make software illegal? Are you going to make computers illegal? Are you going to make GPUs illegal? Are you going to make AI illegal? You know, and you really practically can't do that. So I think there will be no way to control it eventually. And, um, only you'll be able to just control like the, the mass commercialization of it, uh, through regulations and through agreements and stuff. So, yeah, I don't know what the heck is going to happen. It's really wild. And that's why AI scares the crap out of people because it's like, it's like, um, like a bomb, like that's set to possibly blow up and destroy everything you've known and the status quo of your life and the, the media culture you grew up with. And, you know, it's, it's scary, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think there's going to be a long lasting kind of sustainable market for, um, these, uh, like AI generated, you know, as you say, movies or art or content, or do you think it's going to be a fad? And at a point people will just say, eh, I prefer when movies had real people in them made by professionals. <laughs> I think it'll be both. One is that, you know, not everyone will be creative enough to think of a great idea for a movie, even if they can generate it themselves. So other people will be still making movies for other people. I think maybe the markets will be smaller for these bespoke movies that are created for audiences of thousands or millions instead of hundreds of millions or billions of people, you know, or something like that. And, and then, um, if I were the film companies, you know, I would try to get in early and try to lock down some kind of generative rights to these properties, like, and sell, you know, people the means to create their own films or generate them. You know, you could be selling a, like a Star Wars movie generator that people could feed their own scripts into. And then you have like an ecosystem where people sell good scripts that make good films with that generator or something. And, you know, it's just a whole new world. I think it'll be wild. It won't be like you have a DVD you stamped and you mass duplicate it to 100 million people. It's it's more like everything's generated on demand. And, you know, I think they do have the potential legally to lock down licensing for like all the Marvel characters or something. And, and if they get in. Uh, to control some of that, you know, generative process, because there will be, like I said, you know, not everybody will be able to do a great job creatively, even with the tools. So, um, and, and at the other, the other end of that is, uh, the cre Hollywood creators who are talented already will be able to use these same tools to push their craft in a whole nother dimension that I can't really predict, you know? So, it's it goes both ways you know we may see really cool films we'd never expected and, and created with like a shoestring budget but they still make uh you know a billion dollars <laughs> they cost like 10 million dollars to make it or something or a million or hundred thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars i don't know <laughs> you know so it'll be weird yeah oh my gosh that's so interesting yeah i just i keep thinking of all these like ai generated videos i see on youtube of like what if Harry Potter was set in a 1970s Italian, like yeah. neo, like film, or something like that? And it's, it's, it's wild to see. Um, you have to ask yourself, like, what happens when the cost of creating media goes to zero? You know, yeah. And what if, like, in my, I just 
I just introduced a limitation which says not everyone is creative enough to do it, but what if there's AI models that are creative enough to do it for you? <laughs> like what if AGI happens and you've got human level brains making stuff for you, you have a whole team of creatives and it's like, you know, I don't know what happens in that world. You know, it's like, it's, uh, it's just weird. So yeah, that, that's wild. It's like when creativity can become, I guess, algorithmically quantified. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't know, but, uh, kind of pivoting from entertainment to education. Um, I'm currently, you know, in grad school, I'm a teaching assistant and the, the, the concern of ChatGPT and how students will use it and kind of what you um, as an educator have to do in terms of being aware of that. Um, from your perspective, do you see like the use of students uh, using ChatGPT as kind of leveling out from where it is right now, or do you see it as an issue that is going to get worse? I think there's probably no no putting the genie back in the bottle. Um, we're going to have to start looking at AI models as like an augmentation of human intellect. I think that will just um, always be there. Just like we can't, there's a lot of people who can't see without glasses and the glasses, you know, let blind people see basically. And there's chat GPT and AI models will let people, um, it'll extend what they can do what they can perform what they can write um and i think it's important in the early days at least what i've what i have uh been saying because there's a big there's a big controversy about these uh, ai detectors that turn out they don't work at all and um yeah and they just they are not scientific whatsoever and they just are completely flawed and so it really a lot of people are getting punished for the for supposedly using AI when they're not, and then some people, you know, would probably use it and not get detected either. You know, and I think um, we just have to accept it, like um, people doing math of the calculator. Um, if it helps them express ideas that are true, um, unique, and interesting, and and accurate, then I th don't see a problem with using. AI models to augment your own ideas and your own writing, you know, but if you're, if you're using it to just generate whole cloth BS, you know, that's, um, you know, not true, it's full of errors or it's written poorly because you didn't, you don't know how to write or edit anything. I think that problem sort of solves itself because a smart, uh, I think a smart professor, a smart educator can see, you know, see through that and see this is, this is like pablum. This is like boring average. The average of everything on the internet just came spit out something and they put it on a page and they don't know what they're talking about and they don't know how to understand it. And I, so I'm, I'm not too worried about that. I think clever people who are really smart will be able to use tools like ChatGPT in a, in a clever and appropriate and ethical way. And then there will be people who just try to cheat through stuff and they, you know, that they're, I think they will, it'll be obvious when they're doing that. <laughs> it's something, some, the rubber's going to meet the road somewhere down the line. And, um, so I'm not too worried about it, but I'm also not an educator because, uh, you know, and there's people who say also that 
the way we evaluate uh, knowledge of a subject should change. And I don't have good answers to that other than maybe, you know, if someone did present you with a paper that you suspected of being AI written, you could talk to them in person about it and see what they know about the subject. And if it's, if they know about it and if they're representing their own ideas, then I think it'd probably be okay, even if they had augmented their work writing with it. But that's just me. So I don't know. It's an issue. <laughs> Do you think the software for uh, detection, I guess you would say, will become more sophisticated or better? No, I don't think so. The, there's nothing magical about, you know, AI generated generated writing that will ever, perp, you know, distinguish it from human writing in terms of. Um, there are some, you know, writers, the, the detectors try to play on, you know, limitations of maybe how the AI model works or whatever, but they, they'll just keep getting better and better and be indistinguishable from humans. And then, you know, when, whenever this hypothetical AGI occurs, which is artificial general intelligence that is supposedly as smart as a human like an average level human of doing lots of different things in a generalized way, um, you will, you know, be able to, anyone in command of that will just be able to create as text with the complexity and depth of any human mind could create. And so I don't see any way to detect that, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, so that's what's coming. Um, is there any uh, current emerging technology um, that you have recently learned about or uh, reported on that you kind of wish more people knew about or but they didn't hmm. i don't know that's a good question there's there's always emerging research and it's hard to know since i am not a computer scientist i'm not a machine learning researcher it's sometimes hard to know if what of any of those things will be important and actually make a difference you know and you it just takes time and you have to watch what how people react to it and whether other people build on that research but i feel like personally like a trend that's happening right now that's very important in terms of extending ai models um this is just personally from my point of view i think synthetic data will be very important which is um people are now using ai models and uh, both you know image models and um, text models to generate training data for other models and so in that way you're using ai to improve itself <laughs> and the reason why synthetic data can be great is because you know when you scrape the entire internet or something you get a lot of junk in there it's not that there's a lot of low quality information there's a lot of you know weird formatting and you know uh, uh, not necessarily the best information but if you have a machine that can approximate the best of that information and generate it itself and you can generate your own training data to generate a new model that's more focused on a particular topic or ability you know and in this case something really interesting happened with um dolly 3 which is OpenAI's latest um uh, image generator model whereas they they achieved really great accuracy um, for prompting um, fidelity to the prompt. So you, you write a description of like a cat with a beer can in a car, 
you know, flying over a hill or something. And it's, it does that so much better than other image models. And the way they did it is because they used their GPT-4V vision model that to generate synthetic captions of images. So um, prior to that, they, they, were tr they were training, you know, these image models on scraped captions and metadata alt tags and things like that off of images on the internet so you you get like a a picture of a cat and it may be like their pet cat bob so the the alt tag may be like bob in a hat or whatever and it doesn't have say anything about a cat you know so it's not very accurate all the time and you're feeding all that into there and then that's and, and then it's supposed to learn the the association between bob and a hat and a cat and it's you know that can confuse things but if you have an accurate uh a more accurate way of making captions automatically because no one can sit around and caption you know 100 million images um they have a model now that can do that it's called gpt 4v <laughs> that can look at a picture and describe what's in it and so they use that to go through probably hundreds of millions of images and write really accurate text descriptions of what's in each image and then they fed that data into their you know image model training and they got so much more accurate results from it. And so I feel like the synthetic data is is like the next big step until until there's another fundamental, um, some kind of architectural change in how AI models work um, that will take things to the next level. So, yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, so another question I kind of had was, um, Again, getting a little science fiction here, probably. Mm -hmm. But um, AI, at least from my perspective, it, it seems like it's still kind of operating in this sort of ephemeral space um, in terms of how people use it um, on their computers or smartphones or what you will. But, like, do you see um, the, if there's, like still a desire or potential for like putting that AI and I guess what you would say is like a, a humanoid kind of model, like a robot or something like that. Or, um, do you, do you think like they call that embodiment? <laughs> yeah. Embodiment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think so. I mean, Google in particular has done a lot of research about embodiment in models. I've written some articles about, you know, they have this, basically like a robot platform that has a sort of a head with a stereoscopic binocular vision and it has one arm on it and it has a mobile base that can roll around and pick things up and move them and, and stuff. And they've done experiments with controlling that with large language models and stuff to varying degrees of success. You know, they're really interesting. So I think that's about the level we're at right now for those things. There's the, as far as having robots that are human, you know, I think we're way off in terms of technology um, to be able to, you know, have the power power requirements and compactness and everything and durability and everything of like a human body of human body size to to like replicate a person. I mean, I would put that decades and decades away, um, mm -hmm. if not more. You know, but so. But um, <laughs> on the, that being said, uh, one of the things about AI, one of the things about all of technology throughout all of history 
is we've used every invention we've ever made to improve our inventions and create new inventions and it accelerates technology. So if we do invent, you know, an AI model that's as smart as a person or smarter than a person, they could help accelerate the discoveries and development of all these things much faster than what I'm saying, you know, faster than decades out, decades and decades. Maybe it's just a couple decades, you know, I don't know. So it's, you know, it's wild, <laughs> wild times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so um, I think for my final question, um, I'll just ask, um, since you um, report and write about new and emerging technologies like AI, like what advice would you give for people who feel like they're not necessarily informed enough on these issues or these, um, you know, learning about it kind of scares them a little bit. Like, how would you advise them to just going about researching these things? Yeah, well, I would say avoid fear and people who try to make you afraid of things. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's a temptation among all journalists, including me, to try to, you know, um, like sensationalize things a certain extent to get attention. But it's, you know, any of my articles, for example, that covered, um, the fears earlier that happened earlier in this year with the pause AI pause six month pause and whether things will take over the world and whatever, um, you will note a, an undercurrent of skepticism. And I think it's important to be skeptical, but open-minded about the technology. Um, and just like keep your BS detectors up on high level because, um, there's a lot of people making a lot of claims that, that don't and these people don't necessarily know what the heck they're talking about and um the best way the best antidote to that is to have a you know a broad media diet you know not just don't just read Ars Technica even though you think it's great because I write I write it <laughs> you need to read other sources of information too so that you can compare and contrast you know the um what different reporters think about these topics and you know, dig into how well they actually understand them. And, um, you know, I, you know, <laughs> I just think, don't be afraid, you know, fear is just the worst. It's the fear is the opposite of understanding. And it's, it's, it's just fear is almost never the, the best or the most accurate response to any kind of new event. There's always some other way you can look at it that's more constructive or positive, even if it's bad. You know, you can still um, approach it from a more pragmatic point of view or something instead of just a, a knee-jerk reaction, which always, you know, goes in the bad way. Because, like, for example, even right now, when people want to regulate AI, you know... We all know, anyone with sense knows that, yes, we probably have to regulate AI at some point. But right now, it's just way too soon to make black blanket sweeping statements about, no, this should be allowed. Uh, no, this shouldn't be allowed. Yes, this should be allowed. And that comes from fear. You know, all this ridiculous posturing and knee-jerk reaction. And so just don't be afraid um, and get a broad media diet and be skeptical. But you know, open-minded. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
Well, thank yeah. you so much for agreeing to be here and for sharing your time. This was so interesting and informative and really appreciate having you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks for letting me talk about it. You've been listening to Looks Like New, the podcast that asks old questions about new technology. Find us on KGNU's It's the Economy, as well as our website, lookslikenew.net. You can find us on Instagram and X. Tune in next month on January 25th for our next episode.